I was dead broke. I lost two cars in the process. Anybody have a car repossessed? I had two repossessed. I couldn't begin to tell you. At times, lights, water, electricity was cut off. Second time they cut my water off, they cut my water off on a Friday. Couldn't get it back on till Tuesday. And I looked in my oldest daughter's eyes and I lied to my oldest daughter. She came home from high school. She took a cup, put it on the faucet. Dad, what's happened to the water? And I looked at that child and I lied. I said, oh, they're working on the pipes outside. No, dad didn't have the money to keep the water on. Why? Because I was inundated with this dream, with this idea. That's Dr. Dennis Kimbrough. And this is The Depression Detox Show. Welcome back to the Depression Detox Show, where we share ideas and stories to help you live a happier life. I am your host, Malik Josephs. Happy Monday. Hope you all had a great weekend. And it's been snowing a lot over here these past few weekends. And I'm not a big fan of the snow, but I do have a little one at home and she loves it. So it is all good. So let's jump right into this week's clips, starting off with best-selling author and business professor, Dr. Dennis Kimbrough. And I'm not sure if you've ever read a book uh, titled Think and Grow Rich. It's up there with um, one of the all-time best books on personal development. But the author, Napoleon Hill, he goes around and he interviews all the most successful people in the world at that time. And because of it, he also became really successful because of all the things that he's learned from interviewing all the most successful people. And uh, he had, he wrote a, a ton of books and a ton of articles and everything. And the most popular being Think and Grow Rich. So our featured speaker, Dr. Dennis Kimbrough, did the exact same thing, only in our era. And he did it with a bit of a twist as well. And he's here to share the three top traits of all successful people. Here's Dr. Dennis Kimbrough. Enjoy. All right. In 1908, there's a knock on the door of the wealthiest man in the world. Who was that individual? It was Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie was 74 years at the time. If you take his wealth at the time and equate it to 2017 numbers, we're talking in excess of $300 billion. Andrew Carnegie had a 64-room mansion overlooking Fifth, uh, Fifth Avenue in Central Park in New York. The butler goes down, answers the door, and who's on the other side of the door? 24-year-old Napoleon Hill. Napoleon Hill was a college student, even at age 24. But he had a side job working for Bob Taylor magazine. That magazine is no longer in, in, in publication. How in the world they got a one-hour interview with this guy, no one knows. But here comes Napoleon Hill walking into the house, and the first thing going through Napoleon Hill's mind... He didn't get caught up in the bling bling. He didn't get caught up in the excess, all the cars, the Rolls Royces, this mansion. The only thing that Napoleon Hill was concerned about was what type of mindset does this individual have, possess, that would bring all this to bear in reality. So he walks in and what was scheduled for a one hour interview, Carney could sense that, that Hill was different. 
And the interview went by so quick. And Carnegie said to Napoleon Hill, young man, I, I, I like your style. I, I like the way you come across. You know, you're, you're gonna really going to make something of yourself. And I'll tell you what, you want to spend the entire weekend with me. You know, you know let's, let's really talk about wealth and achievement and leadership and success. So that one-hour interview transpired over till Sunday afternoon, and it was time for Napoleon Hill to leave. And then Andrew Carnegie asked him the question of questions. He said, young man, he said, I got a little black book. And in that book, I got the contact information of all the game changers out there. I mean, I got the contact. I, I can help you get in contact with Henry Ford, Harvey Firestone, Charles Goodyear, Alexander Graham Bell, you know, uh, William Wrigley, Chicago Cubs, whatever. You know, and just like you interviewed me over the weekend, would you be inclined, if I can set these interviews up for you, would you be inclined to interview these individuals and take that information, place it in a single volume to benefit not only this generation, but generations to come? And Napoleon Hill didn't know that Andrew Carnegie had a stopwatch behind his back. And he was going to time him to see how long it took him to reach that assessment. And Hill said, yes, only took him 11 seconds. And Carnegie says, wait a minute, young man, I, I didn't finish my, my question to you. I'm not going to pay you a dime. Oh, I'll reimburse you for any expenses, but I'm not going to pay you a dime for this task. Writing this book will be reward enough. And again, Hill said yes. Well, you fast forward the videotape to 1937. That book that he worked on became Law of Success, got this country out of its first depression. But in 1937, he wrote Think and Grow Rich while he was on staff, a speechwriter for um, Franklin W. Roosevelt. Well, at the time of his death, and I didn't know it, here you got a nondescript, Dennis Kimbrough got his fancy PhD degree from Northwestern University. All he did, working on his doctorate, he studied wealth, he studied poverty among underdeveloped countries. And when I graduated and I was granted that degree, I turned to my wife and I said, Pat, I know my first book. She said, what is it? I don't want to study wealth and poverty. I only want to study wealth. And I don't want to study underdeveloped countries. I just want to study African-Americans. And I drew up a list, and I placed 50 names on that list, men and women who I was going to interview, and I did. And that list grew from 50 to 100, from 100 to 150. I quit counting at 150 interviews, and I'm still interviewing people today. Well, Success Magazine caught wind of what I was doing. They asked me to write a series of articles. And I wrote three articles. And one of those articles made it to the desk of W. Clement Stone. I just returned home from spending a better part of a day with um, uh, Black Enterprise, Earl Graves, and I fly back to my home and I see there's a message on my answering machine. I hit the button and who is it? W. Clement Stone. W. Clement Stone in the 1970s was one of the wealthiest in the world, certainly one of the wealthiest here in the United States, and he was Napoleon Hill's personal manager. Hit the button, young man, we heard about you. When can you come to Chicago? I'd like to meet you. Less than two weeks later, me and my wife borrow, hook, script, rob Peter to pay Paul to get the money to go there. She waits in the rental car for two hours while I walk into the meeting. I didn't have the slightest idea what W. Clement Stone had in mind, but I got my marching orders from my wife. I was dead broke. I lost two cars in the process. Anybody have a car repossessed? I had two repossessed. I couldn't begin to tell you. Times, lights, water, electricity was cut off. Second time they cut my water off, they cut my water off on a Friday. Couldn't get it back on till Tuesday. And I looked in my oldest daughter's eyes and I lied to my oldest daughter. She came home from high school. She took a cup, put it on the faucet, 
Dad, what's happened to the water? And I looked at that child and I lied. I said, oh, they're working on the pipes outside. No, Dad didn't have the money to keep the water on. Why? Because I was inundated with this dream, with this idea. And the marching orders I got from my wife, uh, if he offers you a job, you're taking it. <laughs> so I go in there and he says to me, young man, you're not the first person going around the country interviewing successful African-Americans. I said, I'm not. And he said, no. He said, Napoleon Hill was doing this at the time of his, at the time of his death. I said, you've got to be kidding. He said, I got a proposition for you. And I said, what is that? We want you to finish a book. I said, what book? He reached across his credenza, pulled out the last 100 written pages of Napoleon Hill, dropped it on my lap. He said, that book. I said, I'm honored, I'm humbled, but I can't do that. And he said, why not? I said, I'm working on a book of my own. He said, if you got any sense, you'll push your book aside and finish this. Well, Napoleon Hill was working on a black version of his all-time classic, got 100 pages into the manuscript, died of a stroke. He was 87 years old. So what do we need to know? No matter who I interviewed, and I got them all from Tyler Perry to T.D. Jakes, Steve Harvey spoke in my class, Ayala Van Zant spoke in my class, uh, who else spoke, Tyrese spoke in my class, you name them, I interviewed them. I found four common chords. Number one, they dreamed big dreams. They had a dream, they had a vision. Something they were passionate about. People ask me all the time, Dr. Kimbrough, what is the difference between the individual who works in corporate America five years and gets sick of the job and starts a business and then quits and then goes back, you know, he, you know, about to lose his shirt and then he runs back into corporate America and that individual who works in corporate America quits, starts his business and then eventually becomes, you know, hits the lodestar, becomes a millionaire, whatever. And I said, simple, burning desire. I felt a burning desire in all these individuals. There I am interviewing Damon John. I said, Damon, uh, what was the high water part, uh, you know, point in your life? He said, when I had to burn the furniture. I said, what do you mean burn the furniture? He said, when I finally got financing from Samsung, Samsung, I got a Samsung, they loaned him $80,000. And what it did, he hired all these seamstresses. He was living with his mother. His mother was a flight attendant. And all these seamstresses showed up at his mother's house and he had nowhere to put, you know, their sewing machines and their equipment. I said, so what did you do? He said, I took all the furniture out of my mother's house, put it in the backyard and set it on fire. See, we got 50 million different desires, all right? That hurricane hit the southeast area and did a little damage to the deck in our house. And I said, Pat, we'll go ahead and get insurance, blah, blah, blah. She said, no, I got a new vision for this. We're going to change this. Change this. Did I tell you I'm getting a new stove and we're going to change this ceiling up here? Pump the brakes, baby girl. Pump the brakes. We all got 50 million different desires. <laughs> That's a desire. You might want to see a new outfit, get a new breath. That's a desire. But look, damn it, a burning desire is an inner candle, an inner flame that cannot be extinguished. And though the worst may go before you, the doubters may come, the cynics may come, and the doubters and cynics were there for me. The non-achievers, unbelievers, all the people who will scoff at you, all the people who will ridicule you, all the people who will ever laugh at you, you will use their doubt, you will use their cynicism to propel you forward. And that's the difference. You got the guy who works in corporate five years, gets sick of it, jumps out there and starts a business. After one year, no one's using his product, no one is using his service, gets behind on his mortgage, about to lose his car, and he says, before I get to lose this house and lose that car, <laughs> blows the dust off his resume and jumps back into corporate America. Then 
you got another guy who worked in corporate America five years. Gets sick of it, jumps out there and starts that business. After one year, no one's using his product. No one is using his service. About to lose his house. About to lose a couple of cars. But before he loses that house and before he loses that car, he doesn't blow the dust off his resume. He says, take the house, take the car. I can't go back in there. Why? What is the difference? One guy is afraid of losing his house and car. The other is afraid of losing his life. I didn't choose to be here and you didn't choose to be here. Baby girl, you were chosen. You were chosen. You were chosen for this time and place. Jesus, where in the world have you been? You had people worried about you. You've been missing. Don't you know we've been looking for you? And what does Jesus say? <laughs> Moi? Me? You looking for me? Brother, you, you should have known where I've been. I've been about my father's. Well, what is your father's business? Your father's business is growth. Your father's business is development. Your father's business being better today than you were yesterday. You know, so number one, dream, passion. What Steve Harvey told me, a career is what you're paid for, but a calling is what you're made for. What have you been made to do? Do you even know your area of excellence? Do you? No one in this room is 16. Come on, man, we got miles on us. How come you don't know your area? I need to know why you don't know your area of excellence. When I'm teaching my MBAs and we go through the process of finding your area of excellence, we pour champagne in that room. Why? Because when you find out the number one reason why the Lord blew breath into your lungs, you find the number one, you know, number one reason, you know, you find your area of excellence, the one thing you do better than anybody else. You never have to worry about income and you never have to worry about employment. Why? The marketplace will seek you out. The marketplace will seek you out. And how do you find your area of excellence? Ask yourself three questions. Number one, what do I love to do? What do I have a passion for? What can I throw my whole heart and soul into? In other words, don't die with your music left in. You sing your song. What did the rapper, you know, uh, you know, Too Short say? It's been way too long time for the whole world to say your, you know, play your song. Every time I walk into the classroom, my students are playing my song. This is what I was born to do. There I am, undergrad, University of Oklahoma. You know what my frat brothers called me? By my junior year, and my frat brothers called me the professor. Why was that a book on the mall? Where's Kimbrough? Oh, he's in lab. In other words, we call it lab the library. He's in, I've always read. I always wanted to know. Inquisitive nature. What did my mother say? Boy, you ask too many questions. <laughs> and that's why I could tell you, mother, oh, Dr. Kimbrough, your books are great. Yeah, I know my books are great. Why in the world can I say it? Because I didn't do anything but sit in the corner, interview your peak performance, and took notes with both hands. I didn't do anything. I just took good notes. Well, I've been taking good notes over the course of my life. So number one, they dream big dreams. How to find your area of excellence. Number one, you know, what do you love to do? Number two, you know, what would you do for free? If no one ever paid you a dime, if no one gave you financial reward, what would you do for free? Because when you're doing what you love to do and you do it for free, your work is your play. And if your work is your play, you'll never work a day in your life. It is completely symmetrical. I mean, my colleagues hate for me to talk like this, but I'm not, Clifton, I love you, my brother, but I'm not here. I don't hawk books. I don't. As a matter of fact, you take any of my classes at Clark Atlanta, you will never, ever find my books on my syllabus. Now, my students will run to the bookstore and get it, especially this time of year. They're going home for Christmas and blah, blah, blah. I want to get this or blah, blah, blah. Folks will come visit CAU and they'll go to the bookstore and the, one of the clerks at the bookstore, you know, he teaches here. Is this class? Oh, yeah, he's in class. And they'll come to my right in the middle of class. Can you autograph this? I got a flight. 
Brothers ain't no book signing, bro. I'm in, I'm in class. I got class. You see my PowerPoint? I'm in class. I'm in class. But that's what I love to do. And that's what I would do for free. And my wife points out all the time, you really are doing that for free. They said, Baby girl, you, you taking care of. You ain't starving, girl. You ain't hardly starving. And then last but not least, if you can't answer those two questions, go to somebody who you respect and admire and ask them, what do you see me as? What do you think I would be good at doing? Again, the day that you find your area of excellence, it is game over. Big thanks to Dr. Kimbrough for stopping by. His website is DennisKimbrough.com. His Instagram is Dr. Dennis Kimbrough. And you can find today's talk on YouTube. It is entitled Achieving Success and Greatness with Dr. Dennis Kimbrough TV, the Empower Series. And everything I mentioned will be in the show description. And lastly, as always, when you get a chance, please follow the show on Spotify, share it, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts because all these things helps get the show out to more people. So thank you. I appreciate you. And I will see you back here Wednesday. So... Until then, stay strong. Later.